Chapter Seven, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Seven, Part One: Moranga, Makali, Ugogo, and Uyanzi to Unyanyembe. The twenty-second of May saw Thani and Hamad's caravans united with my own at Chunyo, three and a half hours' march from Mpwapwa. The road from the latter place ran along the skirts of the Mpwapwa range. At three or four places it crossed outlying spurs that stood isolated from the main body of the range. The last of these hill spurs, joined by an elevated cross-ridge to the Mpwapwa, shelters the tomb of Chinyo, situated on the western face, from the stormy gusts that come roaring down the steep slopes. The water of Chinyo is eminently bad. In fact, it is its saline, nitrous nature which has given the name Marenga Makali, bitter water, to the wilderness which separates Usagara from Ugogo. Though extremely offensive to the palate, Arabs and the natives drink it without fear, and without any bad results, but they are careful to withhold their baggage animals from the pits. Being ignorant of its nature, and not exactly understanding what precise location was meant by Marenga Macaulay, I permitted the donkeys to be taken to water, as usual after a march, and the consequence was calamitous in the extreme. What the fearful swamp of Makata had spared, the waters of Marenga Macaulay destroyed. In less than five days after our departure from Chenyo or Marenga Mali, five out of the nine donkeys left to me at the time, the five healthiest animals, fell victim. We formed quite an imposing caravan as we emerged from inhospitable Chenyo, in number amounting to about four hundred souls. We were strong in guns, flags, horns, sounding drums, and noise. To Sheikh Hamad, by permission of Sheikh Dani, and myself, was allotted the task of guiding and leading this great caravan through dreaded Ugogo, which was a most unhappy selection, as will be seen hereafter. Marenga Mali, over thirty miles across, was at last before us. This distance had to be traversed within thirty-six hours, so that the fatigue of the ordinary march would be more than doubled by this. From Chunyo to Ugogo not one drop of water was to be found. As a large caravan, say over two hundred souls, seldom travels over one and three-quarter miles per hour, a march of thirty miles would require seventeen hours of endurance, without water, and but little rest. East Africa generally possessing unlimited quantities of water, caravans have not been compelled, for lack of the element, to have recourse to the Mushok of India and the Kerba of Egypt. Being able to cross the waterless districts by a couple of long marches, they content themselves for the time with a small gourdful, and with keeping their imaginations dwelling upon the copious quantities they will drink upon arrival at the watering-place. The march through this waterless district was most monotonous, and a dangerous fever attacked me, which seemed to eat into my very vitals. The wonders of Africa that bodied themselves forth in the shape of flocks of zebras, giraffes, elands, or antelopes, galloping over the jungleless plain, had no charm for me, nor could they serve to draw my attention from the severe fit of sickness which possessed me. Towards the end of the first march I was not able to sit upon the donkey's back, nor would it do, when but a third of the way across the wilderness, to halt until the next day. 
Soldiers were therefore detailed to carry me in a hammock, and when the terraqueza was performed in the afternoon, I lay in a lethargic state, unconscious of all things. With the night passed the fever, and at three o'clock in the morning, when the march was resumed, I was booted and spurred, and the recognized matangi of my caravan once more. At eight a.m. we had performed the thirty-two miles. The wilderness of Marenge Makali had passed, and we entered Ugogo, which was at once a dreaded land to my caravan, and a land of promise to myself. The transition from the wilderness into this promised land was very gradual and easy. Very slowly the jungle thinned, the cleared land was a long time appearing, and when it had finally appeared, there were no signs of cultivation until we could clearly make out the herbage and vegetation on some hill-slopes to our right, running parallel with our route. Then we saw timber on the hills, and broad acreage under cultivation, and lo, as we ascended a wave of reddish earth covered with tall weeds and cane, but a few feet from us, and directly across our path, were the fields of matama and grain we had been looking for, and Ugogo had been entered an hour before. The view was not such as I expected. I had imagined a plateau several hundred feet higher than Marenge Makali, and an expansive view which should reveal Ugogo and its characteristics at once. But instead, while travelling from the tall weeds which covered the clearing which had preceded the cultivated parts, we had entered into the depths of the taller matama stalks, and, excepting some distant hills near Mavumi, where the great sultan lived, the first of the tribe to whom we should pay tribute, the view was extremely limited. However, in the neighbourhood of the first village a glimpse at some of the peculiar features of Ugogo was obtained, and there was a vast plain, now flat, now heaving upwards, here level as a table, there tilted up into rugged knolls bristling with scores of rough boulders of immense size, which lay piled one above another, as if the children of a titanic race had been playing at house-building. Indeed, these piles of rounded, angular, and riven rock formed miniature hills of themselves, and appeared as if each body had been ejected upwards by some violent agency beneath. There was one of these in particular, near Mvumi, which was so large, and being slightly obscured from view by the outspreading branches of a gigantic boabab, bore such a strong resemblance to a square tower of massive dimensions, that for a long time I cherished the idea that I had discovered something most interesting, which had strangely escaped the notice of my predecessors in East Africa. A nearer view dispelled the illusion, and it proved out to be a huge cube of rock, measuring about forty feet each way. The boababs were also particularly conspicuous on this scene, no other kind of tree being visible in the cultivated parts. These had probably been left for two reasons. First, want of proper axes for felling trees of such enormous growth. Secondly, because during a famine the fruit of the boabab furnishes a flower which, in the absence of anything better, is said to be eatable and nourishing. The first words I heard in Ugogo were from a Wagogo elder, of sturdy form, who in an indolent way tended the flocks, but showed a marked interest in the stranger clad in white flannels, with a hawk's patent cork solar topi on his head, a most unusual thing in Ugogo, who came walking past him, and there were Yambo, Masungu, Yambo, Bana, Bana, delivered with a voice loud enough to make itself heard a full mile away. No sooner had the greeting been delivered than the word Masungu seemed to electrify his entire village, and the people of other villages, situated at intervals near the road, noting the excitement that reigned at the first, 
also participated in the general frenzy which seemed suddenly to have possessed them. I consider my progress from the first village to Mavumi to have been most triumphant, for I was accompanied by a furious mob of men, women, and children, all almost as naked as Mother Earth when the first world dawned upon her in the Garden of Eden, fighting, quarrelling, jostling, staggering against each other for the best view of the white man, the like of whom was now seen for the first time in this part of Ugogo. The cries of admiration, such as highly, which broke often in the confused uproar upon my head, were not gratefully accepted, inasmuch as I deemed many of them impertinent. A respectful silence and more reserved behavior would have won my esteem, but ye powers who cause etiquette to be observed in Usungu, respectful silence, reserved behavior, and esteem are terms unknown in savage Ugogo. Hitherto I had compared myself to a merchant of Baghdad travelling among the Kurds of Kurdistan, selling his wares of Damascus silk, kefiyas, etc., but now I was compelled to lower my standard, and thought myself not much better than a monkey in a zoological collection. One of my soldiers requested them to lessen their vociferous noise, but the evil-minded race ordered him to shut up, as a thing unworthy to speak to the Wagogo. When I imploringly turned to the Arabs for counsel in the strait, old Sheikh Thani, always worldly-wise, said, Heed them not, they are dogs who bite besides barking. At nine a.m. we were in our boma, near the Mbvumi village, but here also crowds of Wagogo came to catch a glimpse of the Masungu, whose presence was soon made known throughout the district of Mvumi. But two hours later I was oblivious of their endeavours to see me, for despite repeated doses of quinine, the Mukunguru had sure hold of me. The next day was a march of eight miles, from East Mvumi to West Mvumi, where lived the sultan of the district. The quantity and variety of provisions which arrived at our boma did not belie the reports respecting the productions of Ugogo. Milk, sour and sweet, honey, beans, matama, maweri, Indian corn, ghee, peanuts, and a species of bean-nut, very like a large pistachio or an almond, watermelons, pumpkins, mushmelons, and cucumbers were brought, and readily exchanged for marikani, kaniki, and for the white marikani beads and sami-sami, or sam-sam. The trade and barter which progressed in the camp from morning till night reminded me of the customs existing among the Galas and Abyssinians. Eastward, caravans were obliged to dispatch men with cloth, to purchase from the villagers. This was unnecessary in Ugogo, where the people voluntarily brought every vendible they possessed to the camp. The smallest breadth of white or blue cloth became saleable and useful in purchasing provisions, even a loin-cloth worn threadbare. The day after our march was a halt. We had fixed this day for bearing the tribute to the great sultan of Mavumi. Prudent and cautious Sheikh Thani early began this important duty, the omission of which would have been a signal for war. Hamed and Thani sent two faithful slaves, well up to the eccentricities of the Wagogo sultans, well-spoken, having glib tongues and the real instinct for trade as carried on amongst Orientals. They bore six doti of cloths, viz., one doti of Dabwani Ulya, contributed by myself, also one doti of Barsati from me, two doti Marikani Satin from Sheikh Thani, and two doti of Kaniki from Sheikh Hamad, as a first instalment of the tribute. The slaves were absent a full hour, but having wasted their powers of pleading in vain, they returned with the demand for more, which Sheikh Thani communicated to me in this wise. Off! Oh, this sultan is a very bad man, a very bad man indeed. 
He says, The Musungu is a great man. I call him a sultan. The Musungu is very rich, for he has several caravans already gone past. The Musungu must pay forty doti, and the Arabs must pay twelve doti each, for they have rich caravans. It is of no use for you to tell me you are all one caravan. Otherwise, why so many flags and tents? Go and bring me sixty doti. With less I will not be satisfied. I suggested to Sheikh Thani, upon hearing this exorbitant demand, that I had twenty Wasungu armed with Winchester repeating rifles, the Sultan might be obliged to pay tribute to me. But Thani prayed and begged me to be cautious, lest angry words might irritate the Sultan, and cause him to demand a double tribute, as he was quite capable of doing so. And if you preferred war, said he, your pagazis would all desert, and leave you and your cloth to the small mercy of the Wagogo. But I hastened to allay his fears by telling Bombay, in his presence, that I had foreseen such demands on the part of the Wagogo, and that having set aside one hundred and twenty dota of Honga cloths, I should not consider myself a sufferer if the Sultan demanded and I paid forty cloths to him, that he must therefore open the Honga bale and permit Sheikh Thani to extract such cloths as the Sultan might like. Sheikh Thani, having put on the cap of consideration and joined heads with Hamad and the faithful serviles, thought if I paid twelve doti, out of which three should be of Ulya quality, that the Sultan might possibly condescend to accept our tribute, supposing he was persuaded by the oratorical words of the faithfuls, that the Masungu had nothing with him but the Mashiwa, boat, which would be of no use to him, come what might, with which prudent suggestion the Masungu concurred, see in its wisdom. The slaves departed, bearing this time from our Boma thirty doti, with our best wishes for their success. In an hour they returned with empty hands, but yet unsuccessful. The Sultan demanded six doti of Marikani, and a fundu of Bubu, from the Masungu, and from the Arabs and other caravans, twelve doti more. For the third time the slaves departed for the Sultan's tembi, carrying with them six doti Marikani, and a fundu of Bubu from myself, and ton doti from the Arabs. Again they returned to us with the Sultan's word, that, as the doti of the Masungu were short measure, and the cloths of the Arabs of miserable quality, the Masungu must send three doti full measure, and the Arabs five doti of Kaniki. My three doti were at once measured out with the longest forearm, according to Kigogo measure, and sent off by Bombay. But the Arabs, almost in despair, declared they would be ruined if they gave way to such demands, and out of the five doti demanded sent only two, with a pleading to the Sultan that he would consider what was paid as just and fair Mahungo, and not ask any more. But the Sultan of Mavumi was by no means disposed to consider any such proposition, but declared he must have three doti, and these to be two of Ulya cloth and one Kitambi Basardi, which, as he was determined to obtain, were sent to him heavy with the deep maledictions of Sheikh Hamad, and the despairing sighs of Sheikh Thami. Altogether the sultanship of a district in Ugogo must be very remunerative, besides being a delightful sinecure, so long as the sultan has to deal with timid Arab merchants who fear to exhibit anything approaching to independence and self-reliance, lest they might be mulcited in cloth. In one day from one camp the sultan received forty-seven doti, consisting of Marikani, Kaniki, Barsadi, and Dabwani, equal to thirty-five dollars and twenty-five cents, besides seven doti of superior cloths, consisting of Rahani, Sohori, and Dabwani Ulya, and one fundo of Bubu, equal to fourteen dollars, making a total of forty-nine dollars and twenty-five cents, a most handsome revenue for a Mugogo chief. 
On the 27th of May we gladly shook the dust of Mavumi from our feet, and continued on our route, ever westward. Five of my donkeys had died the night before, from the effects of the water of Merengi Makali. Before leaving the camp of Mavumi I went to look at their carcasses, but found them to have been clean-picked by the hyenas, and the bones taken possession of by an army of white-necked crows. As we passed the numerous villages, and perceived the entire face of the land to be one vast field of grain, and counted the people, halted by scores on the roadside, to feast their eyes with a greedy stare on the Masungu, I no longer wondered at the extortionate demands of the Wagogo. For it was manifest that they had but to stretch out their hands to possess whatever the wealth of a caravan consisted of, and I began to think better of the people who, knowing well their strength, did not use it, of people who were intellectual enough to comprehend that their interest lay in permitting the caravans to pass on, without attempting any outrage. Between Mvumi and the next sultan's district, that of Matamburo, I counted no less than twenty-five villages, scattered over the clay-colored plain. Despite the inhospitable nature of the plain, it was better cultivated than any part of any other country we have seen since leaving Bagamoyo. When we had at last arrived at our boma of Matamburu, the same groups of curious people, the same eager looks, the same exclamations of surprise, the same peals of laughter at something they deemed ludicrous in the Masungu's dress or manner, awaited us as at Mavumi. The Arabs being Wakanongo travellers, whom they saw every day, enjoyed a complete immunity from the vexations which we had to endure. The Sultan of Matamburu, a man of Herculean form and massive head, well set on shoulders that might vie with those of Milo, proved to be a very reasonable person. Not quite so powerful as the Sultan of Mavumi, he yet owned a fair share of Ugogo and about forty villages, and could, if he chose, have oppressed the mercantile souls of my Arab companions, in the same way as he of Mavumi. Four doti of cloth were taken to him as a preliminary offering to his greatness, which he said he would accept, if the Arabs and Musungu would send him four more. As his demands were reasonable, this little affair was soon terminated to everybody's satisfaction, and soon after the Kirangozi of Sheikh Hamad sounded the signal for the morrow's march. At the orders of the same sheikh, the Kirangozi stood up to speak before the assembled caravans. Words, words from the Bana, he shouted, give ear, Kirangozis. Listen, children of Unyamwezi, the journey is for tomorrow. The road is crooked and bad, bad. The jungle is there, and many Wagogo lie hidden within it. Wagogo spear the pagazis, and cut the throats of those who carry matumba, bales, and ushanga, beads. The Wagogo have been to our camp. They have seen your bales. Tonight they seek the jungle. Tomorrow watch well, O Wanyamwenzi. Keep close together. Lag not behind. Kirangozis walk slow, that the weak, the sick, and the young may keep up with the strong. Take two rests on the journey. These are the words of the Bana. Do you hear them, Wanyamwenzi? A loud shout in the affirmative from all. Do you understand them well? Another chorus. Then, Bas, having said which, the elegant Kirangozi retired into the dark night, and his straw hut. The march to Bihawana, our next camp, was rugged and long, through a continuous jungle of gums and thorns, up steep hills, and finally over a fervid plain, while the sun waxed hotter and hotter as it drew near the meridian, until it seemed to scorch all vitality from inanimate nature, while the view was one white blaze, unbearable to the pained sight, which sought relief from the glare in vain. 
several sandy watercourses, on which were impressed many a trail of elephants, were also passed on this march. The slope of these stream-beds trended south-east and south. In the middle of this scorching plain stood the villages of Bahawana, almost undistinguishable from the extreme lowness of the huts, which did not reach the height of the tall bleached grass which stood smoking in the untempered heat. Our camp was in a large boma, about a quarter of a mile from the Sultan's temple. Soon after arriving at the camp, I was visited by three Wagogo, who asked me if I had seen a Mogogo on the road with a woman and child. I was about to answer, very innocently, yes, when Mabruki, cautious and watchful always for the interests of the master, requested me not to answer, as the Wagogo, as customary, would charge me with having done away with them, and would require their price from me. Indignant at the imposition they were about to practice upon me, I was about to raise my whip to flog them out of the camp, when again Mabruki, with a roaring voice, bade me beware, for every blow would cost me three or four doti of cloth. As I did not care to gratify my anger at such an expense, I was compelled to swallow my wrath, and consequently the Wagogo escaped chastisement. We halted for one day at this place, which was a great relief to me, as I was suffering severely from intermittent fever, which lasted, in this case, two weeks, and entirely prevented my posting my diary in full, as was my custom every evening after a march. The Sultan of Bihawana, though his subjects were evil-disposed, and ready-handed at theft and murder, contented himself with three doti as Honga. From this chief I received news of my fourth caravan, which had distinguished itself in a fight with some outlawed subjects of his. My soldiers had killed two who had attempted, after waylaying a couple of my pagazis, to carry away a bale of cloth and a bag of beads. Coming up in time, the soldiers decisively frustrated the attempt. The sultan thought that if all caravans were as well guarded as mine were, there would be less depredations committed on them while on the road, with which I heartily agreed. The next sultan's tembe through whose territory we marched, this being on the 30th of May, was at Kitadimo, but four miles from Bihuana. The road led through a flat, elongated plain, lying between two lengthy, hilly ridges, thickly dotted with the giant forms of the Boabab. Kitadimo is exceedingly bleak in aspect. Even the faces of the Wagogos seem to have contracted a bleak hue from the general bleakness around. The water of the pits obtained in the neighborhood had an execrable flavor, and two donkeys sickened and died in less than an hour from its effects. Man suffered nausea and a general irritability of the system, and accordingly revenged himself by cursing the country and its imbecile ruler most heartily. The climax came, however, when Bombay reported, after an attempt to settle the Mahungo, that the chief's head had grown big since he had heard that the Masungu had come, and that its bigness would not be reduced unless he could extract ten doti as tribute. Though the demand was large, I was not in a humor, being feeble and almost nerveless, from repeated attacks of the Mukunguru, to dispute the sum. Consequently, it was paid without many words. But the Arabs continued the whole afternoon negotiating, and at the end had to pay eight doti each. End of chapter 7, part 1